Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to follow along. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. So last week we began the short series on the topic of faith through the summer months. And we saw that being saved by faith and living by faith is not a new New Testament concept, but one that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Faith is a gift, a gift that God gives us to trust Him to accomplish what He has already promised. Faith is a substance, verse 1, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is a foundation upon which we live, upon which we build our life. It's also a conviction upon which we are to then act. It's a substance that becomes conviction, which then produces action. James tells us the same thing in chapter 2, where he writes in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? If we just believe it and we talk about it, I think there are a lot of people that like to talk about it, but don't actually step out and do anything with it, what good is it? In fact, James goes on to say in verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. The primary evidence that the writer of Hebrews gives to us for faith in God's Word is the creation of It's all around us. In verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. He's reiterating in a different way what Paul says to us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The evidence is right in front of our eyes as to God's presence. It's called creation. If we honestly look at what He has made at His command, as Scripture tells us, by speaking it into existence, you've got to see God. Satan has been doing his best to get people not to see God in creation. But the evidence is there before us. And so man is without excuse when he chooses not to believe God. But then the writer of Hebrews, after basically saying the greatest evidence to base our faith on is what we see all around us, he then goes back into their history, our history, but they're the Jewish people's history. Um, and points out to them that their heroes of the Old Testament um, are, are all base, basing their life on faith. 
In fact, this chapter was written originally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help some people who perhaps didn't fully grasp the concept of salvation by faith. And he wanted them to understand that better. And the reason he did that was because the Jewish people of that time had literally been raised for centuries in a perversion of the Old Testament Judaism. A system of religion that taught them that salvation came to those who earned it by all the good things they were doing and by keeping all the laws. So chapter 10 of Hebrews ends with that famous quote that we talked about last week from the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous one shall live by faith. Verse 38. And then in verse 39 of that same chapter, he says, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. He's saying to them that we don't come all the way to the edge of understanding of the understanding of the gospel and salvation by faith and then feel uh, we need to pull back into the old-time Judaism and legalism and works and fall back into destruction. But rather we move forward in faith for it, for it to become the foundation of our salvation. And then he begins to illustrate for them how that actually worked in the lives of so many in the past, all of whom the Jews revered very highly. And the first illustration in verse 4 is Abel. Look at verse 4. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Now here we meet the first man who came to God by faith. The whole point of the chapter, again, is to let the Jewish people know that the concept of salvation by faith is not something new. It's something very, very old. In fact, it goes all the way back to Abel. He's the first one who experienced faith in that way. You may say, well, what about Adam and Eve? Well, Adam and Eve aren't really examples of faith. Now listen carefully, because they had the privilege of sight before the fall. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we walk by faith and not by sight. But the fact of the matter is that Adam and Eve initially walked by sight. They walked and talked with God in the cool of the evening. They had the presence of God. They had the Shekinah glory of God with them all in the garden. There was no need for faith to believe in God. They saw Him. They walked with Him. They talked with Him. Abel, on the other hand, was conceived and born outside of Eden after the fall. He had not seen a manifestation of the invisible God. Adam and Eve had seen and believed, and Abel had not seen and yet believed. And in that sense, he was the first man of faith. And we see in verse 4 that Abel is actually a model of faith for us in three different ways. He's a model of faith in the sacrifice that he brought. He's a model of faith in the righteousness that he received. And he's a model of faith as a preacher of faith. Because he believed he offered a better sacrifice, because he offered a better sacrifice, God testified that that was evidence that he had been made righteous. And because he had been made righteous, declared righteous, 
He is for all the ages a living voice, a living testimony, affirming the great truth of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the just shall live by faith. Now, in order for us to understand this better, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 begins by telling us that Adam knew his wife in an intimate way, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Verse 2 goes on to say that later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel is an interesting name to give a child. The Hebrew word hevel means breath. And it's actually a very fitting name for poor Abel, because this man's life was like James described it. What is life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Abel's life was just a breath. Job in chapter 7, verse 16, actually speaking of life as just a breath, uses the same word. The psalmist in Psalm 144.4 speaks of life as just a breath. Same word. And Abel is an example of that. His life was just a very, very brief breath. Verse 2 goes on to say, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Now, neither one was better or worse. Both had to be done. Abel raised animals. The word flocks, uh, usually referring to sheep and goats, but it could be at that time uh, a few cattle that, that were thrown in, but they were probably primarily sheep. And Cain was into farming. He, he worked the soil, and he did it well. Now, both were sinners, right? Born in sin, after the fall. Both were conceived by fallen parents, Adam and Eve. Both were born... Um, outside of the garden, and this is a this is we're talking about human being number three and four, the third and fourth people to live on the earth, and we need to realize that they were functioning in the full capacities of human humanity. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. They weren't a couple of Neanderthals, a couple of dumb cavemen with a vocabulary of "ug" that we see often depicted. That concept is completely incompatible with the text of Scripture, which tells us that in six days God created everything, and He created it what? He created it good. It was perfect. It was complete. And Adam, of course, I believe was incredibly intelligent. Actually, I would propose that they were far more brilliant than we are today. Why do I say that? Because scientists today say that we only use what? about 10% or less of our brain. God made Adam and Eve perfect. So I would presume they had 100% of their brain capacity firing on all cylinders. Can you just imagine having the use of 100% of your brain? Wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be amazing. He, he was intelligent enough that he could, according to chapter 2, verse 16, eat from anything in the garden. He, he knew what it all was, and he knew what was good, what wasn't good. And in order to make that amazing food supply everything it should be, verse 15 says he had the ability and understanding to cultivate the garden and to keep it. If you read, read on not too, too much further in Genesis, it talks about them using iron and make, making utensils. He was also intelligent enough to name every single animal that God created with a name that was in some way consistent with their form. They had to be far more intelligent than we are. 
I mean, just the accumulated effect of the fall over these past 6,000 years since Adam has to be a diminishing effect. Sin never makes things better. Always makes things worse. There is something called the law of entropy. The law of entropy which says everything is breaking down. And folks, that's a consequence of the fall. Evil men and women grow worse and worse. And no doubt our brain faculties have diminished over the years as well, to the point that we're down now to less than 10% of our brain. Some of the things that we keep hearing, you wonder if it hasn't gotten down to 1% or 2% at times. But even if the fall caused a diminishing capacity, and Cain and Abel were probably still at 90 95%, They were no dummies. These two sons lived in a civilized home. They had the knowledge of tools. They could uh, domesticate and care for animals. They could slay the animals. They could provide food. They knew how to care for and build their herds and, and, and flocks. They had the skill to make tools and to plant and harvest and to grind and produce food and grain and make the food products. And when Cain and Abel were born, they had brilliant parents. Adam and Eve, perfect. Wouldn't it be horrible to have perfect parents when we're not perfect? Who knew all that they knew all they needed to know as they were created in the image of God and they taught their brilliant boys who learned well? So that takes us then to verse 3 and 4, where we get to the real story that we want to look at this morning when we're talking about Hebrews. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Now, remember, the testimony of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, is that Abel is a model of faith. And this is exactly where that obedient act of faith occurred that the writer of Hebrews is referencing. He comes to worship God, and he worships appropriately, demonstrating his faith. That's what Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Now before we look at the reason that this is an act of faith, Let me share with you a couple of interesting things about this act of worship on the part of Cain and actually on the part of Abel as well. Um, It wasn't just something, their act of worship here, their, their offering wasn't just something haphazard that they decided to do on a whim. First, there was a place where God was to be worshiped. The verse says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering. They brought an offering to the Lord. There has to, had to have been a designated place. They both brought it at the same time or the same place, and God had to have established that place ahead of time. It's also interesting that there was a time for worship. Verse 3 gives us a very specific phrase. It says, In the course of time, that's the NIV translation. Personally, I think it's a rather unfortunate translation because it comes across very nebulous in the course of time, as sometime. The actual Greek words here are at the end of the day. 
much more precise, much more specific. could be referring to the, the last day of the week, the last day of the month. We, we don't know, but there is a specific time. Folks, God is a God of order, always a God of order. And apparently he had prescribed a specific period of time uh, for them to come to a specific place where they could meet God and offer their sacrifices. So there's a, there's a place, there's a time, and there is a way. And there is a way. There's a way to worship, and Abel understood the way and obeyed it. It says, Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Now, how would Abel have known to bring an animal sacrifice if it hadn't first been revealed to him? And why was Cain rejected when he brought other than that if it was not an act of self-will and disobedience? Neither Cain nor Abel could have known anything about sacrifice unless God had first revealed it to them. And when Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering, what, what, what faith is he talking about here? It's faith in the revelation of God. Faith comes by hearing, does it not? We believe what God has said. This is not some kind of a nebulous faith. This is a faith that says, I have heard God speak, and I believe it. it is true, and I will obey it. Abel knew that God required a sacrifice, and he knew what kind of sacrifice. He believed that, and he evidenced his faith by obeying God's revealed will. And that's why he's a model of faith. He heard the truth, he believed the truth, he obeyed the truth. He worshipped the way God had ordained worship to be done. Now, this is not to say that God rejects all fruit offerings, all grain offerings, all vegetable offerings. If you would read in the book of Leviticus, you would find a number of them actually. In in Leviticus 19.24 it says, In the fourth year all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. So there were times when fruit and grain were to be brought to the Lord as a praise offering, but the first and primary offering and the only one which could atone for sin was a blood sacrifice. So we see that Abel did what God required. That's the first thing about his act of faith. He brought the right sacrifice that was required by God. That's the act of obedient faith. And in a very real sense, it was a picture, of course, as we all know, of the greater sacrifice that would be offered by Christ. All through the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Christ, picture of Christ in so many aspects. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled with sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the blood of Abel is referring to the blood of the lamb that Abel sacrificed. It was the right sacrifice at the time for Abel, but the blood of Christ is far superior. That's what all of Hebrews is, is about. Far superior to the blood sacrifice offered by Abel. Now, on the other hand, let's take a look at Cain. He didn't do that. Apparently, he didn't believe that it was really necessary to bring a blood sacrifice, even though that was absolutely established by God. He thought he could approach God on his own terms, offer his own styled sacrifice. 
that, that reflected his farming trade and tools, right? I mean, this is what I do. I'm going to... Sounds very noble. Perhaps even sounds spiritual. But he didn't recognize, apparently, the need for atonement. And that's really the bigger issue here. It's not necessarily what... Atonement, of course, is reconciliation of, uh, to, uh, with God by means of repentance and confession of sins. And the way that has to be done according to God was by the shedding of blood, life for life. But Cain decided he could do it his way. Isn't that the theme of our culture today? I can do it my way. God says, no, you can't. No, you can't. You have to do it my way, and it's only through Jesus. You see, Cain didn't acknowledge his sin. He didn't acknowledge a need for blood sacrifice for atonement and thought he could approach God without sacrifice, without atonement, on his own terms. The very short letter of Jude in the New Testament, just before Revelation, verse 11, one chapter, he calls this the way of Cain. The way of Cain, referring to the way of false religion. He is, in essence, the father of all false religion, inventing ways to God, inventing schemes to please God, and they all fail. They all fail. Now, here's a curious question. How good or bad were Cain and Abel growing up? What was the general character of Cain as compared to the general character of Abel? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us anything about whether Cain was just a really bad person and uh, Abel was a, just a really nice, good guy. It doesn't say anything about how good or bad they were because it didn't matter. No matter how good we are, we can't be saved by any of our own efforts or any of our own work can only come if we recognize that we are sinners and desperately require a blood sacrifice and an atonement. So it really doesn't matter whether Abel was a little bit better guy than Cain was. No one is good enough. So Cain fails to acknowledge the fact of sin. He fails to acknowledge the need for sacrifice for sin. He fails to obey God, and consequently, he is rejected. Verse 5 says, But on Cain and his offering, he, God, did not look with favor. No blessing. And he went out from God. Verse 16 there in Genesis 5 tells us, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He went out from the presence of the Lord. where all the people of false religion end up, out of the presence of the Lord. And Cain built a city, the first city of man, the beginning of the world system. False religion is in league with the world system because the world system operates outside of the presence of God. It all started with Cain as he chose to go his own way apart from what God had required. But then there's something that takes place that we often don't think about or we, we kind of forget that's there in Genesis, something that shows the amazing attributes of God, His love, His grace, and His mercy. Yes, in the Old Testament. 
At the end of verse 5, it says, So Cain was very angry. He was angry at God. He was angry at his brother. And it says, And his face was downcast. And in the midst of his fury, Cain's fury, God comes and speaks to Cain, not in anger, but in love. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, God's not looking for information. God knows. But he wants to hear it from Cain. He wants to touch Cain's heart. And so in verse 7, he actually extends an invitation to Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This is after his, uh, his sacrifice that God did not accept. He said, if you do what is right, will you not now be accepted? God, in his mercy and grace, in his slowness of anger, out of a heart of love, comes to Cain and gives him a second chance to do what is right. Cain, why don't you just bring an animal sacrifice? Go to your brother, negotiate with, uh, with him, purchase an animal. He, he might even give you one. Bring the animal and, and we're good. God gives Cain the invitation to obey. This is an invitation to forgiveness. This is an invitation to joy. This is an invitation to life. If you do what is right, will, you will be accepted. On the other hand, God says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. There are always consequences to disobeying God. We either master sin, rule over it, and do what's right, or sin is going to eat us alive. It's very clear in this verse that these men knew what God required. God doesn't have to re-explain to them the process, what, what kind of a sacrifice and why and, and, and the wherefores. He just says, do what you know is right. Both of them knew. There is no ignorance here. Abel's sacrifice of an animal was, was not some kind of accident, a lucky guess. And Cain's was not some kind of accident in which neither of them knew what God wanted Abel acted righteously because he acted obediently to, word of, to the word of God in faith. He trusted what God said and he accomplished it. Believing the word of God, believing that it came with a penitent heart, acknowledging his sin and knowing he needed a blood sacrifice for his, his sin. And if he did that, he knew that he would be accepted because that's what God promised. Does that mean that when it says Abel was righteous in that passage, that somehow on his own he could please God? No, not at all. Whether he was a better guy than Cain or not, he still needed to recognize his sin and his need for a blood sacrifice for an atonement. In God's economy, sin had to be covered. Remember, God cannot look on sin. Sinners need to be covered, and they cannot cover themselves. Adam and Eve tried that. Remember, they tried it with fig leaves. And God says, not good enough. Blood has to be shed. And God is the only one who could provide the covering, and he provided the covering for Adam and Eve as well. And it was the death of a lamb. Dr. George Barnhouse, an old-time commentator, used to say, found this fascinating. At this point in the Bible, right here with the story of Cain and Abel, at this point in the Bible, the highway to the cross 
began to be built. It would be one lamb for one man. Later the Passover, it would be one lamb for one family. Then at the Day of Atonement, it would be one lamb for the nation. And then at Calvary, it would be one lamb for the world. Isn't that neat? The highway to the cross started back there with Cain and Abel. This is where the life of faith begins. It begins with an acknowledging of sin and the need for an atoning sacrifice. And Abel bows to the truth. The truth is he's a sinner. The truth is he's, he's under the sentence of death. The truth is God has designed a substitute for his, uh, in his place. The truth is bringing that offering and, uh, bring that offering and God will provide forgiveness. That's the truth. That's the, exactly what he did. And those are basically the, basically the basic steps of faith. That's what faith is about. So the first thing we learn about Abel is that he brought a more excellent sacrifice because it was what God required. The second thing we learn about, uh, about in Hebrews 11 verse 4 is that God testified that he was righteous. By faith, Abel brought a better, better offering than Cain did. By faith, point two, he was commended for or as righteous. God testified that he was righteous. And this is such a fundamental and foundational truth of the gospel because it's when we come to Christ who is our sacrifice, when we recognize that we are sinners and that that Jesus paid in full the penalty for for our sin and, and we embrace that by faith, we believe that and we act on that and as it were we come to the altar and embrace the sacrifice of Christ as our own sacrifice being offered to God. And it's at that moment that God gives testimony that we are declared righteous. That's exactly what happened. Isn't that amazing? He was commended as as righteous because he brought to God a better sacrifice, a more excellent sacrifice. God always wants excellency. Who Who was he commended by? God himself. God did not command Abel or did not commend Abel, excuse me, for what was in Abel, or for how good he was, or just the type of person he was. God did not commend Abel because he was such a good guy and God really liked him. God commended Abel because of his offering, because he believed God's revelation about the necessity of blood sacrifice. Abel was as much a sinner as Cain. He was as liable to eternal judgment as Cain. But he believed God, he obeyed God, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And here you have the first time that we have a record in Scripture of righteousness being credited to the account of an obedient sinner. In theological circles, we call that imputed righteousness. This is huge because this is a model not only for all of Scripture as you go through Scripture, but this is a model for us today as well. It is credited to our account. God gives testimony that this man, Abel, has attained righteousness. His act, an act of faith, was an act which brought the very righteousness of God to cover him. And this is a foundational understanding of the doctrine of justification. Abel honored God by bringing the right sacrifice, and God honored Abel by imputing righteousness to him, by crediting righteousness to his account. That's mind-blowing. And you know what? That's exactly what God does for us. 
Exactly what he does for us. If we have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect sacrifice, God will give open testimony that we are righteous. He will impute his righteousness to us. He will credit it to our account. Cover us with the very robe of his righteousness, as Isaiah said. I love that image. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. He became sin for us that we might be made righteous in him, that the very righteousness of God in him might become ours. Incredible. Over in Philippians chapter 3, Paul Paul says he spent all his life trying to achieve a righteousness of his own. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Remember, he was trying to do everything right. And then he met Jesus. And then he met Jesus, and he embraced Jesus Christ as his substitute, as his blood sacrifice. He embraced Christ as his offering on the mercy seat on the altar, and he received righteousness. A righteousness, he says, not of my own, but the very righteousness of God given to me. Folks, when God commends us as righteous, it's just not an affirmation. It's a declaration. It's a declaration from God, a proclamation from God. God affirms openly before all the hosts of heaven that righteousness has now been granted to this penitent sinner. The other side of the story, of course, is Cain. God always gives both sides of the stories, the good and the bad. The consequence of believing God is faith. The consequence is turning away from God because I want to do it my way is moving out of his presence. Cain goes from bad to worse because of his prideful anger and he ends up killing his brother. And God banishes him and places an additional curse upon him. The ground that used to be his friend, that produced so, much, so many amazing crops for him, will no longer do that for him. And Cain cries out, God, this is too much for me. I'm going to be rejected. People are going to kill me. He was, he was showing a great deal of remorse over what he was going to suffer. But there was still no repentance. He never said, God, I have sinned. In my pride and anger, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. God would have forgiven him. That's why he gave him that second chance. Cain could have said, you know, I, I tried to do it my way and I, I blew it. I should have trusted you. But there was none of that in Cain. Folks, what a lesson for us today. People continue to struggle with that question, don't they? I want to do it my way. Why do I have to do it God's way? I'm, doing my, I'm trying my hardest. I'm doing my best to be good. God will accept me. But the lesson here in Genesis chapter 4 is if we don't recognize our own sin and our own dependence on the sacrifice that God has established in Christ as the only way of salvation, we're lost and we're hopeless. Jesus said it very clearly in John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed. 
in God's one and only Son. We can't do it by our own efforts. So by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, God credited righteousness to Abel's account. And there's one final comment to make about Abel in Hebrews 11, and it says that he is a preacher of faith, preacher of the value of faith, preacher of the necessity of faith, preacher of the excellency of faith. Even though Abel has been dead for over 6,000 years, he still speaks to us about the necessity of faith, of believing God and obeying in faith. We have to have that foundation, the substance of Verse 1, Hebrews 11, the substance of faith, and then have that conviction to put it into action. Because without the action, our faith is worthless. So practically speaking, as we hear Abel speak to us about faith, we need to come to God only by faith in his word and obedience to what he asks and not by our own works. We can't ignore what God has said. We have to believe it and act upon it. And we have to recognize the need for sacrifice to cover our sins. Those are the basics of faith. That's Abel's message on faith. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And those who try to come to God any other way will be lost. The basics of faith. Next week we're going to be looking at Enoch as he walks faithfully with God. What does that mean? Every one of these characters in Hebrews chapter 11 has a different nuance, a different aspect of faith. And so I trust that as we go through the summer here, we're going to have a far greater expanded knowledge of what faith is all about. But we need to not only start with faith, we need to then walk in faith. Father, this morning we thank you for the provision that you made for us. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Uh, Scripture says that you never change. And we in our own minds think that there's a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament, but you are the same. You started with love, grace, and mercy, and you're ending with love, grace, and mercy. And it's, it, it's depicted all the way through Scripture. And Father, I pray that we will gain a greater aspect of what this faith is all about as we read your word, that it is so true. It never changes and never wavers. And it, it always, you always keep your promises that we can stand on it and we can act upon it. And Father, I pray that um, if some of us are struggling with this, that you would take it from our brain and move it to our heart. And from our heart, move it into action. So Father, I pray that our lives will be a testimony, will be an example of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.